0: You got your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, week two of our Advent series. Now some of you are not new to Advent. We walk through the Christian calendar every year. Advent is actually the start of the Christian calendar. Some of you, this is a little bit new. It's not something that you have uh, stopped and celebrated, and so I want to be aware of that. Um, I always feel a tension during the Advent Christmas season between two things. Advent wants us to stop and celebrate the mystery of Jesus and to stop and to, um, man, just to, to find a way to make it meaningful and significant and transformative, to really enter into the story of Christ's birth and not just let it pass us by, but to to take a moment and sit in it. And then I also feel like I get sucked into Christmas, and I feel unprepared and unready and rushed, and there's decorations and there's gifts and there's travel and anybody else just feels sometimes like, man, it's a lot. Um, I, I love a lot of it and some of it I hate with a passion. And let me tell you the part I hate with a passion. Every year, going up in my attic and grabbing these big old boxes and bringing down and putting Christmas lights on our house, I despise with a thousand just strong, just everything within me despises it. And I wonder to myself, how in a year of sitting in a box do half of these lights now not work? Like, you've, just, you've done nothing but sit there. Why do so many of you need to be replaced? And the reason I feel this very real tension is because my kids are all about Christmas lights, all about them. Like, they are all about celebrating them. And so what I did a couple years ago was I was like, I'm going to up my game. In the Christmas light department and so like the after Christmas sale I went and bought a bunch of the strands of LED lights and I'm like I, I'm gonna wrap one of our large trees in the front yard like you see people wrap those like this is a picture that was in my head like it's gonna look amazing right <laughs> my goal was to be the house that when you were driving by you at least slowed down to look at come on now like just if you slow down a little bit that's a win and so um, I researched some of it and greatly underestimated the amount of lights required to do this, the amount of time, the danger of getting that high on a tree <laughs> with only a ladder—all of the things, right? And so, by the time I get this tree wrapped, it's nowhere near looking like that picture. And so, I was so frustrated by it, I didn't put lights on the rest of the house. I like, I didn't outline or anything. So it became—it's a running joke with my kids. My kids are young, and it's an inside joke in our house. Like, hey, Dad, you're gonna wrap a tree this year, or just gonna leave it, you know? And I'm like don't make fun of me, you know? <laughs> because last year I was so frustrated, I didn't do anything else. And so this year, like I didn't even try to wrap the tree anymore. I just outlined the, the, the lights. We we're pulling out of the driveway last night and my kids are laughing at me. Dad, it looks good. I'm glad you didn't try again. Like, just give it up. It's not for you. That's not, that's not your thing, right? Thank you, thank you. <laughs> this tension that we feel, that you feel probably in some area of Advent and Christmas. Let me tell you why we do Advent why we do the Christian calendar. It's actually a gift from the church to us. It's a gift of slowing down. It's a gift of entering into the story. It's a gift of not allowing these seasons just to pass us by, but to actually stop and to set them. And in fact, I want Advent to be like a breath of fresh air where you like breathe in for a moment on Sunday morning and you stop and you remember what this is really about. And I pray that's what it is. We wait with anticipation. During Advent, Advent is a season of waiting. I, I know we don't like to wait, but the, the posture of the Christian faith is one of waiting. We will always be waiting until we get an eternity with Christ. We 're always waiting for Christ to be revealed for what Christ wants to do, and it, it's a posture that, that we put ourselves in. As Israel, as the people of God in the Old Testament waited for the Messiah, we're going to wait. You know what we could do? We could just jump into the end of the story and just celebrate every week but we would miss a significant part of the story because a big piece of the story is actually sitting in the darkness and sitting in the waiting and watching what God does. And that's what the Christian calendar does. We sit in Advent waiting for Jesus. We sit in Lent and we journey with Jesus to the cross instead of just jumping to the resurrection. We sit with the disciples in the upper room at Pentecost and we wait for the Holy Spirit to come. The Christian calendar reorients us around the story of God the waiting, I love what N.T. Wright says about Advent. He says, if we remove Advent, that is attentively waiting for Jesus' birth from the Bible. We lose half the Old Testament and most of the New Testament, including the stories of Jesus' ancestors, the words of the prophet, prophets, and the mystery of the Incarnation. Like a, a big chunk of the Bible is the people of God waiting on God to be revealed. And we can't just, just uh, move through that to the good parts, right? We have to sit in it. We sit in that for a moment and during Advent we pray this prayer as the church collectively we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. As we wait, as we watch, as we set, we wait for God to be revealed, we wait for the light to break through the darkness. We named this series of Advent Longing this year. I don't know about you, but I love the word longing and it's not a word that we use, a ton. This is a time and a season where we ask, what do you want? What do you want for Christmas? There's nothing wrong with wanting things for Christmas, right? But that's a very surfacey question because you know things that you want and desire, they're going to come and go. It's like, oh, I want this and it'll be out of style. Like we know those ultimately don't fulfill. And yet, has anybody ever asked you the question, what do you long for? Like that's a soul question. Like what's the deep aching of your heart? Like, what deep down inside do you long to be made right? Do you long for God to do? What's the longing that you desire in your relationship with God? What's fractured or broken right now in you and you're praying for God to make right? This is a deep, deep question, right? This last week, uh, as a staff, every Monday we gather together. Sometimes it's just staff meeting. Once a month, we do staff chapel, Why do we do staff chapel? Because the staff are here on Sunday attending church, but they don't really get to attend church. And so we create environments where they get to worship and they're fed. And once a month, we have a Monday that for a couple hours is just about prayer. And this past Monday, we practiced different forms of prayer. There's different ways of praying. There's different ways to engage God. And I I think you need to explore these spiritual formation practices and figure out what resonates with you. And we practiced contemplative prayer this last Monday. Contemplative prayer, to me, is the absolute hardest form of prayer because it's setting. And instead of learning to produce something or find something or get something out of it, you learn just to be with God. And let me tell you, your mind is going a thousand different places. And every time it does, you just bring it back to center to who God is. And we led our staff through this time of just meditative contemplative prayer. And we, we did a Lectio Divina over Mary and Martha how to have a merry heart in a Martha world, right? As Martha is so busy, how do I learn to sit at the feet of Jesus? And I get distracted and I wanna go do this and I wanna jump into this, but how do I bring myself back? And we sat in that for a while. And then I told our staff at the end of our prayer time, I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a piece of paper, whatever you've got, and write a longing statement. And I would encourage you to do this. Write a spiritual longing statement. What is it you long for? in your relationship with God? I I just think this is what the psalmist did. I think this is why you see heartfelt heart cries of honesty and confession, of joy, of celebration, of anger, of disappointment. How many know you can share your disappointment with God? How many know God's big enough to get your anger? And what do you long for? God, this is broken. This is not how I want it to be. This is not how I thought it was going to go. I didn't think this was going to be a part of my story, right? And that happens to everybody. I sat in my counselor's office this past Wednesday, sharing a story that I wish was different. So don't tell me that disappointment doesn't come or you're a pastor or certain people. No, everybody experiences disappointment. And a longing statement is, God, this is not how I thought it was going to play out. I didn't want this to be a part of my story, but I do give it to you. Here it is. Would you make it right? And let me tell you, your longings can either lead you to despair or they can lead you closer to Jesus. Are you with me? Your longing can actually lead you, your desires can lead you to a place of deeper relationship with God if you allow it. Now, they can also take you the opposite direction if you allow it. And until you and I are with Christ, how many know there's always going to be a restlessness in our soul? Always. If you're taking notes and following along, the restlessness in our souls is a continual reminder we're not home yet. This restlessness you and I feel right now in the waiting, in the in-between, is a reminder that this is not our home. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus can bring peace to your moment and contentment, but there will always be something inside of you that is longing for things to be made right fully. Are you with me? Because we're not home yet. That's part of our reality. I love what Trevor Hudson says in his book. He says, there's a part of us that is forever restless, dissatisfied, frustrated, and aching. There is an unquenchable fire, a restlessness, a longing, a disquiet, a hunger, a loneliness, a gnawing nostalgia, a wildness that cannot be contained, an ache that lies at the center of human experience. This is the reality that you and I face, that we face these deep down in our soul and they either lead us to Jesus or they lead us to despair. But until we get home, until we get to eternity, the people of God will find themselves in a posture of waiting. You will have to learn how to find God in the waiting. If you wait to find God in the arrival, you will continually find yourself dissatisfied and unfulfilled. How do you find God in the waiting and the longing? The people of Israel, all throughout the Old Testament, they are waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for the light to break through. It got really, really dim. Mary was waiting to see if the angels promise to her about Jesus would come to pass. The disciples are waiting on Jesus to bring his kingdom. They're in the upper room waiting on the Holy Spirit to fall. There's this continual waiting. What do you do with that? What do you do with that Restlessness. Do you allow that restlessness to drive you to Jesus, to the heart of God? Or do you allow that to restlessness to pull you away from him? To breed doubt or fear of the unknown or what could be. The book of Isaiah, where we're gonna be this morning. If you've never read the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah is a prophet that comes to the Southern kingdom of Judah. This was a time geopolitically where the Northern kingdom of Israel had, had branched off from the Southern kingdom of Israel. The North was Israel, the South was Judah. It says that Isaiah began to prophesy in the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah was king during a time of prosperity and wealth. Trade was flourishing. They didn't have any enemies. Life for for Judah was up and to the right. Everything was going well. But at the end of Uzziah's life, everything all of a sudden began to fall apart. One of the things that began to fall apart is how many know with prosperity and wealth comes a challenge to believe in prosperity, and money rather than the things of God. So this discrepancy between the rich and the poor began to grow. There was injustice taking place. In fact, the rich would take from the poor just to get richer, and it would go and go and go, and God was says, I'm not about that. I told you from the very beginning, I'll be your God, and I'll establish this covenant with you, but you've got to withhold your end. Don't oppress the poor, Right? Don't do, don't do certain things. I'm your God alone. You can't serve other gods. You can't serve yourself. You can't serve money. So all of these things begin to kind of fall apart. It says that Uzziah died. His son came to power and it was nothing like his father. He wasn't a good leader. He wasn't able to manage the country. Things begin to fall apart. All of these things happening. They're forgetting God. They're turning from the covenant. Then on top of all of this, In the northern kingdom of Israel, you have the Assyrians that begin to come down. This brutal group of people led by a king named Sennacherib who overthrow the northern kingdom. So all of a sudden, Judah's thinking, is this going to happen to us? Are these invaders going to come in and take all of our stuff, carry us away, do unspeakable things to us? All these things are in their head. It became very dark. King Uzziah, who was this great king who led the kingdom. Now he, not only he disobeys God, if you read this, is a really messy story in the Old Testament. He disobeys God. He gets leprosy. He has to move out to a leprosy colony where he eventually after two or three years dies. He was kind of seen as the hope of the nation, of the country. I, I, I paint this picture for you because I want you to understand how dark it was getting for the people of God. How many know peace is not truly tested until you go through trial? until there's a shaking. Like once you are shaken to your core, you really find out what you trust in and what you don't trust in. When I think about this, I think about the great theologian and poet Mike Tyson. Anybody remember him? Great boxer. Here's the thing about Mike Tyson. I used to watch these Mike Tyson, Evander Holyfield. I mean, they had these epic battles. Two very different people. And I'm not just talking about he bit his ear off. I'm talking about like their tactics. Mike Tyson was a brawler. He would go in and figure it out as he went along. Vander Holyfield and his team would put together an exact plan, right? And Mike Tyson's most famous quote, he has a lot of quotes, most of them we would never repeat, but his most famous quote was this. He says, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the, in the mouth. Everybody's got a plan until you get in the fight and you get punched in the mouth. They were asking him, what do you think about Evander Holyfield and this plan? How are you gonna counteract? He's like, yeah, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. I, I think everybody thinks to themselves as a follower of Jesus, oh, here's how I'm gonna respond. I trust Jesus, my, my peace is rooted in him until you go through trial. Then you go through trial and all of a sudden, what you believed about God can't be just something you learned, but it has to be a reality that you live. Do I really trust God with my life? As I'm facing this, do I really believe that God's good and in control? And you have to to wrestle through the implications of what that means. And and it was so dark in Judah, the Southern kingdom of Judah. And God speaks to this remnant. He tells them to hold on to hope. He he reminds them that he's working in the darkness as, as the people of God are waiting, they're crying out. Remember the cry of the people is this, God, you have to do something. You have to break through this darkness and the reality. Here's what we get in Isaiah chapter nine, verse two. Isaiah to the people of God. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yokes that burden them the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with righteous With justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Imagine hundreds of years before Jesus would break into their world. Isaiah prophesies it. He says, you have kings, good kings and bad kings, governments come and go, dictators and all these leaders, but God is going to break through. You have to hold on to this hope that God's gonna bring through. He's gonna bring this prince of peace. And guess what? The governments won't come and go anymore. Now he will establish his rule and reign forever. You know what the difficulty about this prophecy is? The difficulty with what Isaiah was saying is that God was not immediately taking away their pain and struggle. I want you to follow this this morning. God wasn't saying, here's your hope. I'm going to take away your struggle and all of life is going to be good. And you're just going to walk on a bed of roses. Because how many know that would have been easy for them to have hope in that? What God says is, even as you walk through this pain and struggle, the hopes you're going to have is what I'm going to do. And you're going to hold on to it. And it's going to be your driving force. And it's going to sustain you. And it's going to keep you. What is God saying to his people through Isaiah? Don't miss this. He's saying the darkness and distress are real, but they are neither the only reality nor the fundamental reality. It seems like it. When you're walking through darkness, it seems like everything is dark. But God's saying it's neither the fundamental reality or the only reality. I am in control and I am working in the darkness. What do you do with that? Faith will move you to hope. Or circumstances can move you to despair. What are you going to do, Israel? And that's what he says, a light has dawned. If you've ever ever been there, some of you have never seen the sunrise, but every morning it happens, right? (laughs) I should use a sunset, but it's not the same. A sunrise, if you've ever been there, and you can see just the glimmer of light, and then every moment that you wait there, it gets brighter and brighter. That's the imagery that Isaiah uses for the people of God. If you will hold on, it may not be immediate. It may not be as quick as you want. But hold on to that hope because God is going to break through. God is going to move. This is the Christian story. What do we do in the in-between? Can we hold on to hope? God will bring a Messiah. I've shared this story before. Uh, years ago, I have a good friend. Uh, He's shared this stage before. He is a, a, a rabbi in Jerusalem. He's a Jewish rabbi. He's not a Messianic Christian uh, or Jew. He's not, I'm not a Christian. Um, he has an organization that brings Christian leaders and Jewish leaders together to collaborate. Um, and years ago he came up to me and and a friend of mine who's a pastor and he says, Hey, would you guys get a pastor's group together? Come over to Israel. I'll take you around for about nine or 10 days. He goes, it'll be completely free for you. I said, let me think about that. Yes. (laughs) I had no problem finding the maximum number of pastors that they would take. And so we all went there. I think it was 2014, something like that. And, uh, because he's a Jew, he can't go across. He can, but you choose not to. You can't go across into Bethlehem, which is a Palestinian territory. So me and my pastor, Roddy Fouts, North Church in Oklahoma City, uh, we decided to go earlier. And we were like, man, we're, we're going to utilize every moment we have to see as much as we possibly can. And so we came a little bit earlier than the rest of the pastors. We went across the, um, the wall into uh, the West Bank, to the Palestinian territory, into the city of Bethlehem. We wanted to spend two or three days in Bethlehem and just see the city and Uh, Many of you know this, my dad works with Bible translation across the globe, uh, a large organization. And so in every one of these cities, my dad has contacts with Bible translations and and schools. And so he had set me up with one of his contacts. And so we met him at the Bethlehem Bible College. And he was going to tell us about the work that they were doing, kind of explaining some of the geopolitical climate of what was happening in the city. And let me just tell you, you think you know what's happening in Israel and Palestine there. It is the most complex, layered situation you have ever seen in your entire life. And you hear things on the news that aren't reality. And so being there and hearing from the Israelis, hearing from the Palestinians, hearing from Christians and the Jews, it, 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 it's amazing to see the different perspectives on one, on the same issues. And as we're sitting there in Bethlehem Bible College, some of the teenagers, these are 14, 15 and 16 year olds, they begin to occupy the streets right in front. So if you can look out the window that I'm looking out in my mind, there's a street filled with teenagers and you have the wall right here that they can't cross over into Israeli territory. They're confined to their little area. And just to tell you, the Jews built the wall to make sure they got all the best resources and left the Palestinians with nothing. So these teenagers have nothing. And I watched them out from this third story window throwing rocks at the Israeli troops on top of the wall. I look at the president of the, the Bible college, I said, you know. What, what are they doing? He's like, this is somewhat normal. usually, at least a couple times a month, the teenagers will come out. This is their way to protest. This is their way to say, we don't appreciate what you're doing to us. And um, over the next several hours, I would have never have dreamed what would happen. What took place was an intensification that even the president of the Bible college had not yet seen. We watched as this big door opened and this tank rolls through the streets and the Israeli soldiers began to hit these Uh, Palestinian teenagers with this chemical spray. It intensified to like Molotov cocktails being thrown. And I'll never forget sitting in that room the first time that live bullets, like you can tell when a gun goes off. We're watching this out the window. It's like watching the news, but you're watching it in person. And me and my pastor, we have another friend with us who's actually a videographer. So he's videoing all of this. It, It was like another reality so the president of the university looks at us. He's like, well, this doesn't happen every day. He goes, this is intensified to the place that we're not gonna be able to leave the facility or we're gonna to have to wait here until this calms down. We can't exit the building when all of this is happening. We watched this take place. I watched a 14-year-old young man get shot right in front of me. His and his friends are trying to brag, drag him back to an ambulance. We're in Bethlehem when all of this takes place. Finally, hours later, when we're able to leave the building, we're supposed to go to the field of the shepherds, which is apparently the field where the shepherds would have seen the angel. And they don't know exactly where, but you go to these areas and we were gonna to go to the church in the nativity and all these things. We walk outside to the field of the shepherds. We couldn't stay there. The tear gas was so thick in the air that our eyes were watering. We immediately had to go back inside. How many know when I thought about visiting Bethlehem, that's not what I thought was going to happen. I thought I was gonna have this meditative prayer moment out in a garden where we just like read the story of Jesus' birth, and I'll never forget that day, what happened. is I'm sitting there, and actually that night, back in my hotel room, I'm looking over the city of Bethlehem, and I just begin to think about the birth of Jesus, how the political climate was crazy when Jesus was born. Herod the Great was killing the baby children. It was conflict, it was disaster, there were political division everywhere, and how here we are 2,000 years later, and guess what, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. If you're taking notes and following along this morning, here's the reason why I tell this story is this I say this every year during Advent that peace is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of Jesus. Peace is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of Jesus. That's actually what I wrote down that night as I was reflecting about my events. If we wait for conflict to be reconciled, if we wait for everything to be just perfect, guess what? We always live disappointed. But I think what Jesus does, is he breaks into the middle of our conflicts, of our difficulties, of our struggles, and he brings his presence. And how many know, I think that's what Jesus wants you and I to experience. In the middle of where we're at right now, with political divisions and things, and guess what? As good as it may be, it's never gonna be fully reconciled till Jesus comes. That Jesus wants to break into our lives with his peace. I'll never forget standing on the third floor of that building, watching all of this play out, watching people being shot, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old kids. And I looked at the Bethlehem, the president of this Bible college, and he said, you know, he said, this is what happens when people feel like they have no hope. He said, these teenagers feel like they have no future. It's been taken from them. There's nowhere for them to go. They can't get an education. They can't move forward. And guess what? It's really dangerous when you take away somebody's hope. I never forgot that. I never forgot that. Hope is a powerful thing, isn't it? We don't even realize that when hope's taken away, we we move into despair. But the hope that we are moving towards something better will drive you. It'll wake you up in the morning, won't it? It gets you out of bed. It fixes your mind on saying, no matter how bad this situation is, guess what, it's going to get better. But what if, you, what if you live in a situation where you don't know if it will get better, or if you're uncertain? You lose that hope. See, I think in Isaiah nine, this is what God is doing to his people. It is bad, but you're holding on for something better. If you're taking notes, the last thing is this. Peace is rooted in the belief that what is in your future is greater than what is in your past or present. Peace is rooted in the belief that what is in your future is greater than what is in your past or present. This is the foundation for our hope. This is the foundation for our peace. If, if you do not believe what is in, what in your future is better than what is in your present, you will move to despair. But as the people of God, we truly believe this. That's why we cry out during the Advent season with people right now all over the world, Christians all over the world who are right now walking through Advent just like us, we cry out, come Lord Jesus, come. Can I tell you every time I watch the news and I see some kind of catastrophe or disaster or something horrible happening to a people group, this is the phrase that comes to my mind. Come Lord Jesus, come you've got to do something about this. I, we weren't designed to experience this. Like innocent people suffering, come Lord Jesus, come. Come Lord Jesus, come. But let me tell you, you can only pray that if you really believe what is future is better than what is present or past. Like you have to believe it deep down inside. Like you're waiting for the fruit to become ripe, is what I think about it in my head. You could eat the fruit now, but it's not ready, so you wait. Because if you wait, it'll be good, right? You ever been wanted a relationship with somebody, a guy or a girl? And you could force it and you could fast track it, but you know you just need to set in friendship for a while. Because if you let it develop, maybe it'll go somewhere. Like you wait because you believe on what you're waiting for is going to be good, Right? wait. That's, that's what Advent is. And we're waiting with God, for God. We're waiting because we truly believe it's going to be good. Uh, some of you know I have a, a man crush on Diedrich Bonhoeffer as a theologian. I share about a thousand of his stories. Growing up, I, I just, I was so enthralled by the story of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor and theologian who grew up in the Nazi regime. I was amazed by him because you remember, the Nazi regime didn't start as a radical ideology, it started subtly. And the church in Germany began to give in towards power and political influence. knowing that if they stood up to Hitler and regime, something bad could happen to them. So they were silent or they were complicit. There's parallels we could make, but I'm not gonna go there. Dietrich Bonhoeffer led an underground church He counted the cost and he said, we're Jesus people, not people of nationalism. And we're gonna remain Jesus people. And how many know it came at a cost? And so as the Nazi regime intensified, their ideologies became extreme. It went from subtle things to overt things. Eventually, and and this is Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrestling with his faith. He actually led an assassination attempt on Hitler with another group of individuals. And he was a pacifist, but he came to that point (laughs) in his life. Obviously it didn't work. He was found out to be part of it. And he was put in prison where he waited for years. He had had visitors about once a month, but he could write while he was in prison. Some of the greatest writings That we have from Dietrich Bonhoeffer were written when he was in a Nazi prison camp. He actually wrote a devotional on Advent called God is in the Manger. It's beautiful. As someone is writing, if you read the beginning of the book, it says this, for Bonhoeffer, waiting, one of the central themes of the Advent experience, was was a fact of life for him during the war. Waiting to be released from prison waiting to be able to spend more than an hour a month in the company of his young fiancee, Mary von Vetterberg, waiting for the war to end. He had to wait and there was nothing he could do. While he waited, friends and family died in the war. His parents' house was bombed and destroyed. He consistently had to wait and he had no power or influence over anything. I wanna read this last part. There was a helplessness in his situation that he recognized as a parallel to Advent, Christian's time of waiting for redemption in Christ. Life in a prison cell may well be compared to Advent, Bonhoeffer wrote his best friend, Eberhard Bethke, as the holidays approached in 1943. One waits, hopes, and does this, that, or the other, things that are really of no consequence. The door is shut and can only be opened from the outside. He likened his time in a prison cell to the waiting we have at Advent, that we can't open the door. We can't do what we need to do. Only God can break through. Only God can do something. And here's the thing about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and, and most of our theologies were are like, look at this man of God, look at this man of character, look what he did. Like God broke through and rescued him. No, Bonhoeffer was martyred. He died. He died. In 1945, as the Allies were breaking through, two weeks before Hitler would take his life, three weeks before the Allies would liberate those in all of these prison camps, one of Hitler's last acts when Hitler knew that it was over and his end was to kill all the prisoners. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer at the age of 39 was killed. And sometimes in this story, we're like, it's it's not supposed to play out like that. But I think if you go back to the story and the life of Bonhoeffer, what he would say is my hope was not in the outcome. My hope was in Jesus, amen, in Christ. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of Jesus. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of Jesus. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of Jesus. Would you stand to your feet with me across this room? Cody, I don't know where my communion went. Can you find some for me? Thank you. If you want to be prepared, we're going to take in just a few minutes. If you would, just right where you're at, just close your eyes. Let's take a moment to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. As we long for Jesus, let me ask you this. Is there a part of your life, maybe a part of your soul that you're not experiencing peace? Maybe you're waiting for something to change. Well, this, is just can be reconciled or maybe I'll get a better report or if this will change you, if this will go away. Can I redirect your attention away from circumstances and to the presence of Jesus? Trust me, I pray that your circumstances do change. It's okay to pray that. But we pray that Jesus would break in to our circumstances with his presence. That he would change us. That whether or not it plays out like we want, that we would experience the peace of God because we hope for something better. We are hoping for something so much better. We are not people wondering without hope. We're not wondering if God is good or if the story is gonna be good or if it's gonna play out. No, we know that the story only gets better in Christ. Holy Spirit, we just ask right now this morning, would you break through in our hearts with your presence? Where we're experiencing chaos or lack of peace, God, would you break through this morning, this Advent season, as we wait for the things of God to be revealed? Break through. God, we long for you. We long for you. In just a minute, we're going to take communion. Every week we come to the table as a church. If you're new to this, uh, we practice open communion, which means if you're hungry for more of Jesus, if you've taken him as Lord and Savior, you're welcome to come to the table with us. If you haven't, you're invited to do that today to take Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you're not ready to do that, man, you can sit where you're at. There's no need to take. And you can sit in this time of prayer and worship with us. But we do this every week. We remind ourselves who we are. And can I just tell you City Church, sometimes I come to the table in celebration, in joy. Sometimes I come to the table limping. And guess what, Jesus meets me there. Sometimes I come to the table confused and hurting and angry. And Jesus is big enough to meet me there. Sometimes I come with physical problems. Weary in my soul and my body. So I just say to you this morning, however you are today, you can come to Jesus that way. Amen? You can come to the table with what you have. And Jesus says, in my brokenness, I'll meet you. See, this is the mystery of the Eucharist, of communion, of the table. We don't fully understand it. We just know God meets us in this space so Holy Spirit we ask that you would come meet us here for those who are rejoicing and for those who are suffering God for those who are confused and those who are just angry today for those who are overwhelmed with anxiety or the pain of disease would your healing power flow through the body and the blood today and meet us right where we're at we pray in Jesus name Jesus was gathered around his disciples and he took the bread and broke it. He gave it to them, said, do this, eat this in remembrance of me. Let's take together. And Jesus took the cup, his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink together. right where you're at, would you just tell God, thank you? Would you practice gratitude, thankfulness? God, we're so grateful for what you've done in us. No matter our situation, you are good and you are writing a good story and we have hope. We thank you for this. We thank you for this, Father, in Jesus' name. I'm gonna ask our prayer team to come forward. Just in a minute, we're gonna dismiss. If you need prayer for anything today, God moving in your life, you have a need, you're walking through something, stop and allow somebody to pray for you. Maybe you're hurting today. Maybe you just need somebody to pray over you. Please stop with them and pray. If you're a first time guest, I'd love to meet you in the lobby, just 30 seconds of your time. Next week, we're gonna continue our Advent series next two weeks and then our Christmas services. It's kind of the pinnacle of the celebration uh, on the 22nd. Man, bring your friends, family. It's gonna be our last time here at the ballet. A little bit bittersweet, uh, but also exciting. And so make sure you're following us in the f- coming weeks as our schedule is a little bit different, some of the changes. Um, let's end with our mission statement. Go live it out this week. Wherever you are, be the gospel. Be the gospel. God bless you.